welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. My name's Tony Bromley. Welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. This is season two. Uh, in season two, we are talking to presenters from the Research, Education and Development Scholarship Conference in 2022. Uh, I'm delighted today. I have uh, Katie Nicole Baines with me um, and the presentation title was Retaining Research Talent During COVID-19 Lessons Learned from the University of Edinburgh. So hello to you, Katie. Hi, nice to be Hi. here. Um, and how are you? How are you today? Okay. Yeah, very well. Um, adjusting to the fact that the temperature has dropped, um, and it very much feels like winter up here in Scotland. So, it's just... but it's always beautiful. I like the snow across Edinburgh. Is there anything more beautiful than that? Yes, we are lucky, and it's a beautiful sunny day today. It's just very crisp and sort of frosty already, and I feel like that shouldn't be allowed until at least October and well, September. Possibly. And I was going to, you know, I was going to start by apologising because the first time we interacted, I got your name wrong and I missed the uh, nickel bit. And then when I just introduced you then, I think I said Nicole, didn't I? I mean, I, 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 I will say, so I, yeah, I say nickel, um, kind of, um, I suppose, sound, it sounds like the, the metal is, is what yes. I usually say to people. But I mean, Nicole, People do see the C O L L, and that is call in in like there's there's an Isle of Call in Scotland, which is how you'd say that. Um, but yes, people getting my name wrong is is kind it's of part of the course for me. <laughs> I think <laughs> um, you've you've been very kind to me. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think I've <laughs> I've developed tools of sort of gently saying. Um, and by the way, this is my name. Um, um, because I, I, I think back to the time it happened, the most significant time it happened was for my undergraduate degree graduation. Oh, and dear. Despite the fact that I was listed with all of the N's, the person reading out the graduates' names just read out Katie Baines, and I could feel my mother in the audience <laughs> seething because right. the nickel is her name. And oh, yeah, okay, right. I, oh I dear. Was walking across the stage, like, oh no, she's going to be furious. <laughs> At least it said the right thing on the certificate, though. So, anyway. I better I better move on quickly. Um, yes. Right. Um, so, the podcast research culture and cover. So we're, t we're talking about a number of. Um, aspects of research culture and particularly today when we get into the questions we're going to get into one of the big areas and that's the precarity of contracts which is something that you've touched on uh, in terms of your presentations mm -hmm. um so I, I just want to start with um in your abstract you mentioned funding from an epsrc inclusion matters grant so can you tell us a little bit more about your context and, and what you did with the funding yeah, absolutely. So we were awarded this Inclusion Matters grant in towards the end of 2018. Um, and our project title was um, Evidence-Based Growing the Big Grant Club. So we had a specific focus on access to large grant funding um, and looking that more broadly um, in the context of, of career progression for research scientists um, in the engineering and physical sciences because the funding was EPSRC. That was our focus. 
Um, I, at the time, was involved in the project as the project manager um, and one of our research fellows did the early stage ethnographic research, um, speaking with those involved in the system, both researchers themselves and those that create career development opportunities for researchers, such as fellowship programs or leadership programs. Um, and that gave us an understanding of how people experience that system and the kind of pinch points that they might be exposed to um, as they're trying to progress and access these funding opportunities. Because as we know, access to funding is a huge motivator in progressing somebody's career forwards and up the ladder. Um, and so we were looking at that generally. And then yeah. 2020 hit yes. <laughs> um, right in the midst of our data analysis and our plans for the next stages of our project, um, which kind of forced us to think about how we pivot um, and adjust uh, under those circumstances. Yeah, I remember, um, I'm just thinking about the applying for large grants. There was a few years ago, I was speaking to somebody at Leeds and there was a particular grant had been announced and the details of how you applied for it. And they said that it meant that because of the, the nature of the details of what you had to have to apply, there was only about 10 people at Leeds that could apply for it. So, I mean, it, you're experiencing that sort of thing and restriction itself just simply in the bullet points listed as to what you need to apply. Yeah. Absolutely. The messaging and even thinking about general grants around fellowships, there's this importance of messaging has a real impact on who thinks that they can apply. Um, so my role now is I, I'm the Equality, Diversity, Inclusion Manager for the Future Leaders Fellows Development Network. So we're supporting the career development and leadership development of Future Leaders Fellows from UKRI. But even just that phrase, Future Leaders Fellows, might not be strictly relatable to all people thinking about perhaps going for something like that. Yeah. Think seeing yourself as a future leader is a very specific thing. Um, and so I think we have to pay quite close attention to the impact of the language used in the kind of funding calls and opportunities that are put out by funders yeah. um, and the impact that that has on the diversity of people that apply. Yeah. And I, um, I was interested, you, you mentioned already about the qualitative uh, interviews um, and pinch points that uh, were identified. I was just interested, what, so, so what were the sort of main pinch points that were identified from researchers? Yeah, so there were a number um, of themes that were identified through, through the qualitative analysis. Um, and these included um, navigating this sort of mid-career stage where things become a lot less clear um, as to how you fit into the system and the associated support that's required. So that kind of linked to the opportunities that are created through mentoring and networks um, and how there's a definite sort of gendered element to that in terms of who you know and how those opportunities get created based on who you know. And so access to those opportunities is, is kind of gatekeep, it's gatekept, um, if you will. Um, the, the concept of workload and, and the burden of additional responsibilities comes up a lot and that can kind of force people into certain areas beyond just being able to apply for funding. So if you're overburdened with teaching or um, administrative support or pastoral support, which again have some gendered and um, inequalities associated with it. Um, the notion of caring responsibilities as well, which I think we're all familiar with being a constraint on somebody's career. Um, and this actually was shown, we spoke to both men and women, um, and there were kind of similar experiences across the board. I think how they then manifest and are perceived by the wider community does vary um, in a slightly gendered way, but it, they are being experienced. Um, and then more broadly, the 
kind of imperceptible nature of the process itself. So the bias that might be happening at decision-making stages, people not fully understanding what is happening at a panel um, because they haven't had experience themselves being yeah. on a panel and all these sorts of things. And so actually understanding and demystifying processes was something that we saw as as an area we'd want to unpack and, and make more transparent if we were able to, if we were wanting to shift the way the system operates um, and is, becomes more accessible to people. Yeah, it's interesting, just, I just picked up there, you mentioned um, pastoral um, care that people do because oh. um, I recently spoke to our keynote presenter from Red's conference, which is available in another uh, podcast, and uh, Louise Awusa uh, Kwartang, and she mentioned um, the gendered aspect of it and she also mentioned that how we value things. So I don't know if you found that sort of thing that, that people are doing a lot of things which are, are, are extremely valuable, but not valuable in terms of the criteria that people are putting together to progress. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If we look at, you know, promotion requirements, even internally at a university, there might be some small consideration of, you know, peer support, pe mentoring, tutoring, pastoral support for your students and your staff but actually the still the still the big deciders as to whether or not you get that professorship or you get that promotion to reader if you know you're at a different stage is still hugely contingent on publications and research grant income um, and so there's no more there's there isn't this holistic approach that ideally we should be promote we should be promoting people based on all aspects that makes them a rounded leader manager researcher because actually if you're capable of supporting the needs of your team very well you're actually going to ultimately probably do better research because they'll be more supported they'll be able to perform better um, and so i think it's a it's a short-sightedness in realizing how many different things contribute to a healthy working culture Yes. Um, and if we placed a more equitable degree of value on things like pastoral care, I think it's likely that we would see a shift in organisational culture towards a more inclusive um, and welcoming environment. Well, I was going to come to the outcomes uh, of the work that you did, um, but just picking up on that, that last point um, there, do you, do you recognise shifts perhaps in your own organisation or perhaps more widely? So um, in my piece for the conference, I'm going to be talking specifically about uh, an opportunity that we had that was created by COVID, actually. Um, so at, at, when we got to that point in 2020 and we just kind of got, got to the stage where we had understood these pinch points and we were starting to think, how can we intervene in the system of the university? Um, Edinburgh was awarded some funding by the Scottish Funding Council that was designed to retain talent at Edinburgh. Um, and our Dean for Research created, um, took the decision to create some Chancellor's Fellowships, which were these tenure track um, um, research positions for research staff at the university. Um, and the decision was made that this would, they, they would aim for 50% women and 20% black and minority ethnic applicants awarded or candidates um, within this scheme. And our team, because they knew of the research we were doing and one of our co-eyes on the team ended up being involved in the organising process. And so we were able to make recommendations around understanding the bias in the decision making process. We pushed for 
a consideration of unconscious bias observers, which is sort of like someone to champion and, and watch for unconscious bias in other people um, as part of this recruitment. And ultimately, we ended up with 80% women fellows and 19% black and minority ethnic fellows, which was a considerable achievement considering it was all entirely internal. And Edinburgh University doesn't have the greatest diversity when it comes to to ethnicity specifically within its researcher pool already. So the fact that we were able to retain that many people and actually that many women, I think was quite a good um, achievement. And then I went and spoke to people who had been part of this to understand how they'd navigated it. So we have learning based on um, this kind of, I guess, unique situation at Edinburgh that we yeah. can then share with others around how things worked well, this constant communication of, putting these diversity targets on the agenda, people caring about retaining talent and, and offsetting precarity. That was another key message was that we wanted to create these more secure jobs at the university and that we really value our researchers. Um, and so we had that opportunity effectively because of COVID, it might not have happened um, in the same in the same way. And we might not have had this opportunity to kind of apply our findings in such a re real context. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, so um, it, it, it was it was powerful to be part of, I think. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of just pulling things together in terms of what we, we've discussed, yeah. um, you have, by the sound of it, exacted some change so if you were to advise people or suggest to people what they may want to do within their own institutions and their own mm. organizations, is there, is there any key points you might say that, look, you need to do this, you need to do this? Because we yeah. all have, we all have strategies and we all have agendas and then they don't always work. So something I haven't perhaps made it totally clear is how, um, our, how comprehensive our approach to doing this research was from the outset. So the team that made up the original grant consisted of somebody from physics, someone from chemistry, someone from biology, someone from academic development and research development. Um, and that then meant that we had this more comprehensive insight into the kind of cultures in the different areas of the university. We then built it out to ensure that we had lines of communication with people at those sort of organizational decision-making areas. So the research deans in the different departments, but also human resources, because policy around recruitment is the responsibility of HR. Um, and so you can, you can persuade a research dean or a head of department all you want to do things inclusively around recruitment. But if university policy doesn't say you have to do it, then there isn't necessarily the drivers there to make it happen. And so in this specific example around the Chancellor's Fellows recruitment, we were able to get in early, make recommendations to the human resources lead, and then that was implemented through that structure that was already existing at the university. And so I think a really key element of strategy around system change is understanding the different moving parts in your organization and how to use those to to enact change and now going beyond this recruitment um, that happened specifically around retaining research talent hr at the university of edinburgh are also looking at their general recruitment policy to see if the kind of recommendations that worked in this instance are more applicable across the board when it comes to recruitment and so hopefully we'll see a degree of longevity around these interventions 
um, that maybe wouldn't happen if we were simply a research project happening in isolation that was just doing a study and, and sharing its findings. And so building those relationships from, from early on, part of our research was talking to HR, involving them in the research, having this co-production of, of the kinds of things that we might change. Because then you bring people along with you rather than having the sort of potential conflict. Because if, you're, if your goal is to make change in a system, but you're doing it from a critical perspective where it feels like you're kind of telling someone they're doing something wrong, it can rub people up the wrong way, for want of a better yeah, phrase. Absolutely. And so building those relationships, I think, is really crucial so that you can actually be part of the conversation and it's a dialogue rather than an argument, if that's yeah, over, no, no. not oversimplifying it too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, a dialogue is always going to be better than, than an argument. And and the other aspect that you, you talked about was the, the, the much bigger aspect and that we can't necessarily influence, and that's funders of research and changing yeah. their approaches. I mean, um, I, I think that the... There is evidence there is some change in approaches. I mean, are you, are you seeing that evidence nationally, perhaps? Um, um, so interestingly, I had the opportunity towards the end of, sorry, towards the end of our research project in 2021 to do a secondment with EPSRC because they recognised how our project had worked quite well at Edinburgh and that we had the opportunity to support them looking at their survey qualitative data on attitudes towards the inequalities in large grant funding. Um, and that secondment enabled me to support them to develop some interventions at a funder level, things that they need to be considering um, around how to maybe shift um, the, the situation around how funding is accessed, um, recommendations centred around things like flexibility in grants to do with timing and deadlines um, and how they work relative to sort of key times within the year that are somewhat gendered, such as school holidays or um, semester dates, people with different responsibilities and things like that. Because we saw with the, with take the example of the COVID rolling grants, because there was no specific deadline, eventually they started to look very well evenly distributed, at least with respect right. to gender um, differences. Um, and the other area, again, that came through very strongly from the data was this this notion of bias and demystifying the peer review process at the funder level. So the more that there, there are now these commitments from EPSRC and wider dialogue, as I understand it, um, within UKRI around how to make that process clearer. It's, it's definitely a thing that we try to promote within the Future Leaders Fellows Development Network to support our cohort with understanding opportunities around grant funding. And so I think it's really just a matter of making that more joined up so that all those involved in accessing the funding system really truly understand it and also understand how they have an opportunity to tell funders, maybe we could do this differently or try this a different way, um, rather than seeing the funder as this sort of lofty entity that you can't really talk to because if yeah. you talk to them, you're kind of cheating when actually it's not yes. cheating to speak to the funder before you apply for something. It's perfectly valid to ask questions and try to understand better. But I think if you're the kind of person who doesn't feel like they're part of the system because they don't see themselves as a leader or they don't see people like them as leaders, then there's that kind of not visible, but there is still a barrier to participation and access. Um, that makes them think, oh, I couldn't possibly speak to the funder. Why would I do that? Yeah. Whereas the funder is crying out for people to for speak to yes, them. Yes, absolutely. Want it. And so we just have to break down all of these miscommunications, I think. Yeah. 
do you know there's there's so many connections between what you're saying and uh, I'm going to recommend to people to to listen to Professor uh, uh, also Kortang's presentation as well as some real things that come together. So um, I, the other thing was um, I'm trying to avoid acronyms. I don't think I've explained what EPSRC is yet, just in case somebody doesn't yes. know it. So Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council in the UK. If yes. anybody's from outside the UK and wondering what that was, um, I think we'll 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 uh, finish there. Okay, thank you very much for talking about your presentation. It's been really great to uh, listen to you um, today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes. And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Email us at academicdev at leads.ac.uk. Thanks for listening, and here's to you and your research culture.